WBEZ Features is supported by Adler University, educating students to advance socially responsible practice, healthy communities, and a more just society. With degrees in psychology, counseling, public policy, and leadership. Adler.edu. When police suspect someone of a crime, they can stop that person, and if they think that person has a weapon, they can pat them down. It's often called stop and frisk. Until 2016, the Chicago Police Department leaned heavily on stop and frisk as a strategy, but a leading researcher on the city's policing says it did not make the city safer. Northwestern University political scientist Wesley Scoggins' new book asserts the strategy enabled police to seize a lot of illegal guns and drugs, but also hamstrung efforts to solve shootings. Scogan spoke with WBEZ's Chip Mitchell. Scogan started by explaining what stop and frisk looks like as a strategy. Uh, it involves stopping very large numbers of people, most of whom will turn out to be innocent, in the hopes of deterring people from carrying guns and drugs in the first place and identifying people who are carrying guns and drugs and making arrests or giving them citations. And as a result, you get fewer shootings and fewer dead bodies. When did Chicago really embrace this strategy? Well, about 2004, when Mayor Daley and the chief of police at the time uh, decided that they were going to systematize and turn making stops uh, into a departmental priority. It went along for more than a decade, but it started to reach its, its apogee with the coming of Mayor Rahm Emanuel. And he brought in a new chief of police from New York, Gary McCarthy, uh, who was running stop and frisk operations in New York City. And within two years, it had merged as the number one policing strategy in Chicago. And it rose by 2014 to really unexpected heights. At that point, stop and frisk was three and a half times as common as it was in New York City. During its peak year, 2014, uh, 740,000 stops. Around 2015, in African-American neighborhoods, more people were being stopped every year than lived there. There must have been young men getting stopped over and over and over by police. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, think of an officer who's part of a special unit who's told to go to a particular neighborhood and for a week stop people and, and, and make searches. What has he got to go on? He doesn't know anybody. He doesn't know the neighborhood. He doesn't know when people come and go. What he can identify is young males, uh, and that's who gets stopped. Overwhelmingly, it was young males. And for young black males, stops involve being handcuffed, being shouted at, and pushed around and threatened, all kinds of roughhouse tactics in the street for people who were innocent and who walked away because, in fact, they were carrying nothing and they were breaking no laws. Well, was it successful? Like- well, it was pretty clear that it was relatively inefficient, only somewhat effective, and extremely inequitable. The deterrent effect on shootings and homicides was about 8.5%. That is, they were down 8.5% what they, below what they would have, would have been. When okay. it comes to equity, especially African-American neighborhoods in Chicago, were both under-policed and over-policed both at the same time. They were under-policed in that, that police weren't catching anybody, crimes weren't being cleared, and people felt that they were getting bad service. They were over-policed in that the focus of stops in the neighborhoods meant that unwarranted stops, what I call innocent stops, were mammothly concentrated in those neighborhoods. So what happened to Chicago's stop-and-frisk program? Yeah, Chicago's stop-and-frisk program reached its crescendo in 2014-2015. And then in November of 2015 came one of the most dramatic events in recent political history in Chicago, which was the revelation of the shooting of Laquan McDonald, the release of the tape, which started a downward spiral in terms of perceived police legitimacy in Chicago, the enormous pressure of the public to get something done, And stop and frisk was one of the victims, perhaps a welcome victim, of the political pressure that ensued. 
Rahm Emanuel described the police in Chicago as going fetal. That's right, that they were afraid to stop people. That turned out to be baloney. If you actually dig into the math, the vast databases that police departments generate everywhere from the 911 center to their arrest operations, what you find was that they changed strategies. The most dramatic of these was the sudden rise of, of traffic stops. Traffic stops went through the ceiling following the collapse of stop and frisk. So cops were still keeping busy. Cops were still making stops. They simply switched to a different venue, the car, where they had more legal pretextual reasons to make stops. The pretext of some minor traffic violation like a, a taillight out or something hanging from the rearview mirror. That's, that's exactly right. It wasn't that Chicagoans all of a sudden were driving more dangerously. More than 85% were resulting in simply in verbal warnings, giving the officer the opportunity to check their driver's license and to have a look around the car to see if maybe there was something suspicious. So then pretty quickly, these traffic stops became the main way that the police department seized illegal guns. But I'm looking at this analysis from Block Club Chicago and a Justice Watch, and they found that since... 2015, 4.5 million traffic stops by the Chicago police. And in the most successful year for seizing weapons out of these stops, 2021, for every gun arrest, the police made 156 traffic stops. So what are the effects of making 156 stops to make one gun arrest? One of the consequences of this enormous number of unwarranted stops, stops of innocent people, is that they come away with a very sour taste in their mouth. What they discover is police officers in particular don't want to listen to what they have to say, push them around and shout at them, even though they find nothing. Eventually they walk away, but what they walk away with is a very bad experience, which undermines their trust in police and undermines the legitimacy of the police in Chicago. And that has consequences in return. The real problem facing the Chicago Police Department starting in the early 2010s was the collapse in their ability to solve these crimes. The number of shootings and homicides where they recover a gun, where they find a suspect, where they make an arrest, where they make what's called a crime clearance, that began to plummet. It's now extraordinarily low, and that really limits the capacity of investigators, the detectives, to really do much about crime. And because no one is being arrested, that leads many members of the community to conclude that the police aren't trying very hard, that they're not paying attention to the lives of people like them, that they're not being protected. Do you have any suggestions for the new mayor? With, with the new mayor and new chief of police, there's an opportunity for some new thinking about policy. Uh, we know a lot about things that will reduce crime in the streets. Some of these, Chicago's already started to mount a pretty effective campaign. And that's the role of the violence interrupters and related community organizations providing services and support for young men who are in trouble. And efforts to rebuild the community are, of course, really important. Chicago's black community has been getting actually poorer and more isolated over time. Some dramatic action to try to bring black Chicago back into the mainstream of city economic life in particular is also absolutely important. Northwestern University political scientist Wesley Scogan. This is WBEZ.